What is it that consumes us, distracts us, fulfills us, devours us, exhausts us? If we were to remove that thing, even if only for a moment, could it bring focus to our hearts? Could that time recharge us? Could it give us joy? Teach us dependence? Help us worship? Could it renew intimacy? Teach us to adore? Bring contentment? Jesus went into the wilderness to fast. As he emptied himself, he was filled. If we followed his model, emptied ourselves, might we be filled too? Join us during this season of Lent as we focus on Jesus. Not empty religion, not rote obedience. We deny ourselves alongside Jesus, that we might in our hearts and minds see his beauty just a little more clearly. Well, good morning. I get to introduce our next week's theme in our Lent season. Uh, This upcoming week, our focus is on contentment, contentment in the Lord and in our heart. Um, And the way that we're doing that is we're fasting from unnecessary spending, um, which can incorporate a lot of different things. And so uh, my encouragement to you, I don't know if this has been true for you, but for me, as I've stepped into this Lent season, I've really enjoyed taking the time to center my heart. Um, Life comes at us fast. There's lots of things going on in our world that consume our time and our attention. And the moment to just center my heart um, with the Lord has been such a rich experience for me. And so I want to introduce you to a resource um, that uh, is this book called Every Moment Holy. And the book is a book full of liturgies and prayers um, for literally every moment of life. Uh, There is a liturgy for the beginning of your day, your midday, your evening. Uh, There is a liturgy for praying over a meal, for changing diapers, for waiting in line. Um, There literally is one for everyone. And there's there's a couple in here that are about our spending. Um, And I want to share just a portion of one, and I want to use it as our prayer time as we step into this week of Lent. And this is a liturgy uh, called Before We Shop. Would you pray with me? Be ever at work in our minds and hearts, O Lord, freeing us from the service to things by daily increasing our devotion to you. Liberate us now and always to live as ever wiser and more compassionate administrators of, your, of the trust and the resources you have placed in our temporary keeping. May our purchases and our decisions not to purchase each be made in the same context of delighting in your blessings and of stewarding such gifts in the bright hope of one day hearing you pronounce over our lives the most coveted verdict. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let the hope of the good end, O Lord, shape our vision and our choices as we spend this week. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you have a Bible and you want to open it up to Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to be. As you get yourself kind of settled into that, I have a, a few just little things to pass along. The first is that 
you may have noticed when you came in, the seats are in a different configuration, and they don't like perfectly conform to the shape of the stage anymore. Um, so if you're on the edges here and you've got to kind of turn a little bit, thanks for being patient with that. The reason for that is that by doing the seats this way, we could get like 65 extra chairs in here. And we wanted a couple weeks to like practice with that before Easter because we're going to need the seats on, on that Sunday. And so um, it'll, the configuration is going to be this way for a couple of weeks. And then on Easter Sunday, this will hopefully enable us to serve everybody that wants to be here and still maintain our space and all of those kinds of things. Um, I think we are trucking our way toward the end of having to worry about those things, but it's still a little ways out ahead of us. The second thing is also about Easter, and that is that you can register for services on our website like you register for Sunday morning. There um, are four services on Easter Sunday. I don't think anyone who typically situates themselves at 11.30 a.m. is interested, but there's a 6.30 a.m. service if you want to really stretch yourself. Um, sunrise, that's right. So 6.30 and then our normal three service times, 8 o'clock, 9.45, and 11.30. Um, I would encourage you uh, to go and get yourself signed up the, the seats available in a couple of those services are already very, very low. And so if you know that there's a certain time that's going to work for you and your family, I would go and get yourself signed up sooner rather than later. And kind of like we did back on Christmas Eve, between now and Easter, as your family situation might shift or change or the total number looks like it's going to fluctuate, if you would be diligent about canceling seats you don't need anymore, um, or going in and trying to add seats. So we have a very accurate number of who's going to be in the sanctuary on that Sunday morning. That will help us tremendously and help us be sure that we can get everybody in who wants to be here. Um, the last little kind of thing to pass along is that you may have noticed last week and this week, Brian is not up here leading us um, in worship. He won't be here next Sunday or the final Sunday in March either. He's having back surgery on Tuesday morning. Um, over the last five or six weeks specifically, he's been in quite a bit of back pain and it's gotten to the point where he just can't stand up here and lead. Um, and so that's why the last two Sundays, this Sunday and last Sunday, he's not here. And then he'll have surgery. He'll be recovering for a couple of weeks and sort of the, the ambitious hope, according to the doctors, is that by Easter, he'd be able to be back with us. So we're hoping that's the case, but it could be a little later in April until we see him again. If you know Brian... Well, um, you know the blisses, they would love your prayers, uh, a text or a note of encouragement. Um, if you're interested in like taking a meal to them or something, we could help you get in contact with them for that as well. He's going to be kind of down for the count for a while. I think literally not able to move much for a number of days. And so that's where Brian is, but we've got great um, teams of individuals that help us enter into times of worship through song each week, and that will continue, and then we'll, we'll be excited to have Brian back when that works out for him. Last little bit before we jump into Luke chapter 5, and that's that it has been a year of doing life in church in pandemic uh, world and in pandemic mode. It was actually March 15th last year was the first Sunday that we did virtually, uh, so it's been a full 365 days since then, and the impacts of this whole season of life are 
things that will be studied and probably not fully and completely understood for years. But we do know for sure that whether for people in our congregation uh, here in the United States and certainly around the world, there have been a myriad of impacts in all different facets of life over the last year. And we just wanna take some time um, to pray together, to pray for those who have lost loved ones, Certainly there are, there are a number in our congregation that have experienced that and obviously um, millions of families around the world that have experienced that. And then we also want to just take a moment to praise the Lord for his care and his provision for our church. And so if you would join me in prayer. Sovereign God, we know that all things are in your control under the sway of your will and held within the palm of your hand. We come to you this morning in lament, asking that you would be the comforter, the caregiver, and the protector of all who have lost loved ones, friends, and family due to COVID in the last year, as well as those who continue to struggle with its health implications to this day. God, we grieve with those around the world in this nation and in this congregation who have felt the devastating effects of this pandemic. We mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. We also acknowledge that this pandemic has brought with it a host of effects that stretch beyond the realm of the physical and into the realm of the mental, emotional, the spiritual, the financial, and the interpersonal. Though all of these have not been experienced by each of us equally, we recognize that we all have been impacted in some way and pray that we would draw near to the broken or that you would draw near to the brokenhearted, provide for the financially challenged, give rest to the mentally and emotionally weary, and that you would strengthen the spiritually and physically weak. God, we pray in praise to you for the doctors and medical workers who have risked their lives to care for others during this time. God, we praise you for the organizational, civil, and governmental leaders who have boldly, courageously, and humbly led our world through this pandemic when doing so was neither easy nor clear. We thank you for teachers, educators, and business leaders who have worked diligently to help our society remain functional and to serve those among us throughout these days. God, we praise you for the way you've cared for and been gracious to this church during the last year and ask that in having done so, you would continue to make your name great through us. Would you display your glory, your goodness, and the truth of your gospel through this church collectively and through all of us as individuals as we continue through the end of this season of life? Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, caring for those who are sick, encouraging and supporting those who are grieving, protecting those who are vulnerable, loving those who are impacted, and proclaiming the truth that thanks to Jesus, things like the coronavirus will not be around forever. Would the beauty of the gospel be ever on our lips and ever present in the way that we live? In the name of Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you wanna open your Bible, direct your eyes here to Luke chapter five, verses 33 to 39. It's the last paragraph, last couple paragraphs here in Luke chapter five. And as you look at that, note what the section heading is a question about fasting. I wanna do a little Lent fasting check-in. If you've been joining with us over the last few weeks as we've been working our way through our Lent devotional in this Lenten season, and you've been fasting with us, the different items that we fasted over the last handful of weeks, I just have a question. My question is, how is that going for you? 
I will be the first one to admit that it is ebbing and flowing for me. And I, uh, I planned out the guide. So I know all the things that we're fasting every week, what we're supposed to be focused on. And it has had its moments, moments where I really feel as though my soul is able to direct itself to the thing that we're focusing on. And that is a valuable, beneficial experience for me. And then on the other side, there are moments where it feels like a, a disciplined grind to just get through the week of what we're doing and make it to the next week. Or it feels like I'm fasting from the thing, but I'm filling some space with something else instead of filling it with a focus on Jesus. I'm, I'm willing to admit that I have moments where that rises and falls for me. I had the bigger picture coming into this that we were gonna get to this passage right in the middle of this season and that it would offer us an opportunity to kind of circle the wagons and rally back together and sort of punch the reset button or offer those who maybe haven't taken part with us up to this point a chance to jump in with us and to do so with a renewed focus on why it is that we would fast. And so on you know, daylight savings time morning when all of us are a little bit bleary from one hour of sleep difference, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up that I'm about as excited to talk about fasting as is possible for a human being at 11 in the morning. And the reason is because fasting is feasting. And my prayer this morning is that we have the opportunity to feast as a congregation here together, and that this seven verse chunk would launch us into the remaining weeks of our season in Lent with a renewed commitment to not just separate ourselves from one thing in our life for a week at a time, but instead to really, really feast on the glory of Jesus. And that's the big takeaway this morning, that we fast from the comforts of this world in order to feast on the glory of Jesus. We're gonna see that as we work through these verses. Before we read Luke 5, 33 to 39, if you're open on a tablet or a phone and you wanna swipe back to chapter four, if you've got a hard copy Bible there in front of you and you wanna flip back, let me just show you where we've been up to this point so that I can show you the moment that this is in Jesus's ministry. In chapter four, verse 14, right there in the middle, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, having been tempted by Satan for 40 days, and he sets up shop for his, the early days of his ministry in Galilee. He begins teaching in the synagogues in that vicinity. Then in verse 16, he goes to Nazareth, which is in that general area, and he preaches from the synagogue in his hometown. And as he's preaching, he announces himself as the Messiah. And his hometown's reaction to that is to reject him run him out of town, and threaten to throw him off of a cliff. And in the face of that, Jesus very calmly walks through the crowd and just moves about the rest of his business. He then goes to Capernaum, which is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And in verses 31 to 37, he drives out uh, a demon, casts a demon out of someone. And that's the first time he really shows his sovereignty over the supernatural. Then while still there at Capernaum, he heals a number of different individuals and he displays his power for the first time over the sort of natural elements of the world. Then in the middle of a miraculous fishing excursion, he calls Peter and James and John to follow him, cleanses a man of leprosy, heals a man from his paralysis, and then declares that the 
formerly paralyzed man is not only healed, but also has has, had his sin forgiven. Then sometime later, in verses 27 to 32 in chapter 5, he sees Matthew, or Levi, sitting in his tax collecting booth and calls Levi to join him and his disciples in following him. Levi takes that offer and then throws a big party for his tax collector and sinner friends. And Jesus and the disciples attend that. And it's while they're there that the Pharisees make their first appearance. The Pharisees ask Jesus' disciples, why is it that your master eats with tax collectors and sinners? And they don't have a great answer. So Jesus steps in and he says, it is not the sick are the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then look at verse 33. Then they said to him, so it's all one interaction. We're still outside or in or nearby the dinner party that Matthew, Levi, threw after committing to follow Jesus. Here's the point of all of that. The early days of Jesus's ministry have been a whirlwind. And in the middle of it, crowds are already starting to form. Jesus is attracting large numbers of people to himself. And Luke makes it clear. Some people just want to be near Jesus. Some want to see Jesus. Some want to be healed by Jesus. Some want to hear Jesus. Some want to join Jesus. And in all of these various accounts, these are the words of Luke himself. Some people are in awe of Jesus. Some are astonished by Jesus. Some are afraid of Jesus. Others are astounded by Jesus. Some people are walking away glorifying God because of Jesus. And some people are leaving everything to follow Jesus. What's it been? A few weeks? Maybe a couple months? We're not entirely sure on the timeline of all of these things, but we're still in the infancy of Jesus's ministry. And he's having a massive impact that is drawing attention But all of the gospels want us to know that it wasn't always sunshine and roses. And early on here, Luke points our attention to the fact that there's a group of people, the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, who are not only growing increasingly wary of, but are actually growing openly antagonistic to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so they show up at this party and they say, why is this man eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, I came for these people. And now they're gonna ask a couple of specific questions about Jesus's religious observance of Jewish law and Jewish practice. The first one is here at the end of chapter five about fasting. And the next one is right at the start of chapter six about the Sabbath. And so if you've got it open in front of you, let's read Luke chapter five, verses 33 to 39. It says this, then they, that's the Pharisees, said to him, that's Jesus, John's disciples fast often and say prayers and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. 
Here's how we're going to work through this. We're going to have to talk about, just for a brief minute, fasting in the Old Testament, because that's where the Pharisees' question arises from, their historical religious understanding of fasting. And then we're going to talk about fasting in Jesus' day, because that's how he answers. Then we're going to talk about fasting in our day, because that's also part of Jesus' answer. And then we're going to talk about, and take a little glimpse into fasting and its lack of a presence in eternity. The main point is this, that we fast from the comforts of this world so that we can feast on the glory of Jesus. Verse 33, the Pharisees make a statement, but they're really asking a question. John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. And the implicit question is, why? John the Baptist, he seems like a righteous guy. He's out with his followers calling people to repentance, and they fast, And we, the religious elite of the day, we're striving to be righteous and we fast and our followers fast. So how come Jesus, you and your followers are feasting and partying? This doesn't make any sense to us. And that question is all about what the Pharisees understand about fasting. It's pretty easy for us in 2021 to read the gospels and look at the Pharisees and kind of dunk on them because how could they have possibly missed what was so clear in front of them? But the reality is most of the time their questions or their opposition arises out of what they think to be the truth about living in relationship with God based on the law that they have, based on the practices that they have. And so what was their understanding of fasting? Well, in the Old Testament, fasting was associated with sadness or with pleading. That sadness would be over the reality of one's sin. So if I sinned in some sort of way, not only would I have certain sacrifices that I needed to make, but often it was customary for me to also display my earnestness and my grief over my sin by fasting. I would display to the Lord the depth of my lament and the depth of my... Uh, kind of brokenheartedness over the reality of my sin, that I would fast. Another reason you would fast in the Old Testament is if you were pleading, pleading for your circumstances to change. There's something about what's going on in my life and I'm praying to God that he would intervene in those and as a means of displaying the full like depth of my longing for him to intervene, I fast. The clearest example of this in terms of us like seeing it happen in the Old Testament and being able to understand it probably comes from Job. Job in the first chapter of his account loses everything. His family, his property, he loses his material wealth to a degree he even loses like the benefit of the doubt of his wife who looks at him after all of that has happened and she says, why don't you just curse God and die already? And then in chapter two, Job's friends arrive. And in chapter two, verses 11 to 13, we get a description of what it looks like while they're all sitting around together when Job's friends have first showed up. We're told that they're weeping aloud, that they've torn their robes, that they have dust or ashes scattered around them and on their foreheads, and that no one says anything for seven days. And for us, it takes a little bit to see it. But for a Jewish person reading at the time, the description of that is enough to tell the fullness of the story. This is a posture or a picture of fasting. What are Job's friends gonna say when they first open their mouth? Job, 
you must have some sin that you need to repent of. If you would repent of that sin, the Lord would lift his hand from you. What's Job's response gonna be? I have no sin. I just need like five minutes of God's time so that I can plead my case to him. And in hearing my plea, he will lift his hand. Sorrow over sin, pleading for his circumstances to change. Dust and ashes, torn robes, this is fasting. That's what Job and his friends are doing for seven days before someone starts to talk. So here in Luke, the Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, I don't understand why you don't fast like everybody else. How come you all conduct yourselves this way while John the Baptist and his followers fast and our followers and us, we fast. You claim to be righteous. You not only claim to be righteous, you recently claimed that you could make another person righteous. I want to be righteous, so I fast. John and his disciples want to be righteous. They fast. You claim to be righteous and can make people righteous. And here you are feasting and partying. Help us understand. And Jesus answers in verse 34. He said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? And the fullness of Jesus' answer is going to include three pictures. A wedding reception, an old and a new garment, and then an old and a new wineskin. What are those pictures all about? The wedding feast picture comes first. And Jesus uses it to talk about what fasting is like while he is around. So fasting in the Old Testament, sorrow, sadness, grief, pleading. Fasting in Jesus's day, Jesus says, we don't fast in my day because the groom is present with his bride. And when the bride and the groom are together, you feast, you don't fast. Most of us, I think, are probably familiar with what a wedding reception looks like. You've been to the wedding ceremony. You saw man and woman, groom and bride brought together in the covenant of marriage. Everybody either changed locations and went to somewhere else or they flipped the room and it was time for the reception. And in our modern day, a lot of times the bride and the groom and their wedding party will go and take pictures and everybody's just kind of milling around at the reception thinking to themselves, when do they bring out the chicken that I said I wanted? and you're waiting, and then the bridal party shows back up to the reception, and there are like usually some sort of fun introductions, and then you're thinking to yourself, if you're anything like me, are we going to do all the official wedding reception things pre or post the chicken that I said that I wanted at this reception? There's no sadness and sorrow There's no pleading for changes of circumstances at a wedding. The bride and the groom are together and we are here and we are feasting. Dad of the bride has spent a lifetime paying for this girl's meals. Now now he's paying for a meal for everybody as a way of saying, look, husband, you pay for this from now on. And we are gonna feast together. It's a celebration. It's a party. That's what's happening at a wedding reception. And Jesus says, when the bride and the groom are together, No fasting, we feast. It's the first time that the New Testament takes that image of bride and groom and applies it to Jesus and the church. It's a common New Testament illustration and the first time it happens, it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. I am the groom and I'm here 
with my bride, the church. And we're not fasting. The time for fasting is when you were sorry over the reality of your sin and you wanted to be righteous. The time for fasting is when you were pleading for a circumstance change or you were pleading for God to come and fulfill all of his promises. Well, righteousness has come, I'm it, and the fulfillment of all the promises has come, and I am it, and we are gonna feast. There's no fasting in this day. Think about the glory of what is here. Your righteousness has come. Your deliverer has come. All the satisfaction and all the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament has arrived. And now, my Pharisee friends, it ain't time to fast. My disciples are going to feast. The fact that my disciples aren't fasting is a testimony to the fact that the presence of God is here in your midst. And with him has come all the righteousness of God and all the fulfillment of of God's promises. To fast would be to say there's still something that these people are looking forward to. And if Pharisees had asked the disciples, I don't think at this moment in their walking with Jesus, they could have answered the question correctly. So Jesus answers it himself. The disciples for three years are gonna feast on the glory of the presence of Jesus. And they're not totally gonna understand it until he dies and is buried and resurrects. But Jesus says, while the bride and the groom are together, there's no fasting. What does that mean for today? What does that mean for the church 2,000 years later? Well, Jesus makes a statement about that as well in verse 35. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he launches into his other two pictures. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. Two more pictures. A garment of clothes that's torn or has a hole in it and needs a patch. And a wineskin. And the point that Jesus is making in the second and the third illustration is the same. And that point is that there's a difference between the old and the new. And we all know it. You don't put new fabric on an old garment. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid or maybe you have children and the constant need to like buy their clothing as they're rapidly outgrowing it is great and so your child is riding their bike one day or they're outside playing and they rip the knees in their jeans and we're not buying new jeans until you've grown out of these and so maybe you put a patch in there and you send your kid off to like third grade with a patched knee in their jeans and the new denim that you put in there is a little bit darker or a little bit off color compared to the old denim. I remember those days clearly walking into school like that and thinking to myself, all my friends are gonna know these jeans had to be fixed. Jesus says, with the old and the new, when it comes to me, we don't mix it together. You don't take this old way of living before the groom had come and try to shove it into the new reality that I'm bringing into the world. They don't mix. New wine, you don't pour it into an old wineskin, you'll burst the wineskin. New fabric, you don't shove it into the hole of an old garment because you'll ruin both of them. There's something new happening 
And that means we need to act in a new way. J.C. Ryle says it this way. Jesus would have us know that there's a lack of harmony between a new system of order and an old one. Specifically what Jesus is talking about here is that now that the king has come, we don't act the same way as we did before. After he's gone again, we're not gonna act like we did before. New Testament living in light of the king is gonna look different than Old Testament living waiting for the king. The new and the old don't mix. And so Jesus, the Messiah has come, the savior has arrived, the groom was here with us. The kingdom broke into the world. Now he has gone away and the way that we live now is different than the way that people lived before. For the disciples, the decisive act against the power of sin was just on the horizon. For us today, that event happened in the past, but its impact is rippling forward throughout whatever remains of human history. The kingdom of God, that's his sovereign rule and reign over all things, is subduing the hearts of people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. His people, the king's people, are living in relationship with him, in obedience to him as they engage in a broken world. And that means the things on this side of the cross ought to look different than they did on the other side of the cross. And you can't mix the two. Specifically, that means that while Jesus was here, the disciples didn't fast. But now that he's gone, he's been ascended up into heaven and we're awaiting for him to come again, fasting is valuable. Jesus said, you'll fast again in that day, but it won't look like the old way. You're not gonna fast because of sorrow. You're not gonna fast as a means of pleading for circumstance change. No, in the New Testament, fasting is associated with gratitude and more importantly, with satisfaction. We're waiting for the groom to come again. We're waiting until we are taken to be with him. And fasting is once again valuable. But we fast differently and for different reasons than they did in the Old Testament. The system has changed. We don't fast to prove our worthiness to God. We don't fast because we need to prove the depth of our contrition to God. We don't fast because we think something about ourselves is going to compel God to do something on our behalf. We have Jesus. The King has come. His worthiness is what matters to God. His righteousness, his belovedness is what intercedes on our behalf. And so we fast today as those who are feasting on the glory of Jesus. We're feasting on his finished work. We're feasting on the fulfillment that has been brought with him. We're feasting as a foreshadowing of what it's gonna be like when we're bodily in his presence for all of eternity. And so we fast from the worldly comforts that we have around us in order to feast on the glory of Jesus. Let me be practical about what that means. Three thoughts about fasting in the life of the church today and in the life of followers of Jesus today. The first one is this. We fast from worldly comforts, not sinful practices. Fasting and repentance are different. We shouldn't confuse them. Fasting and sanctification are different, and we shouldn't confuse them. Sanctification is a supernatural, Holy Spirit-powered act takes place over the course of your life. And what it does is it gradually enables you to separate yourself from sin. It empowers you to submit more fully to God and find satisfaction in him. And so in, sa in sanctification, we repent from sin. We don't fast from it. 
We need to be sanctified so that we might walk away from our sin. Sanctification is the process whereby our flesh is crucified. It's not just that we set it aside for a little while. So when you think about the little Lent devotional that we're working through and the things that we're fasting from, we're not fasting from gossip for a week. We're not fasting from lying for, I guess for a week I won't lie, but then I'll pick it back up on the other side. I guess for a week I won't slander anyone, or I guess for a week I'll lay down my lust and my pornography addiction. No, that doesn't make any sense at all. We need to be sanctified from those things, separated from them increasingly and for good. That is the process of sanctification. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. In fasting, we don't set aside a sin issue. We set aside a worldly comfort, something like food. It's common for people today to fast during Lent from sugar, desserts. Maybe it's fasting from caffeine. Over the course of our devotional, we've encouraged so far fasting from noise, like the background noise that just distracts us all the time. We've encouraged fasting like this past week from video games or television, Netflix, those kinds of things. This coming week, we're gonna fast from unnecessary spending. In future weeks, we're gonna fast from our news feeds and social media and cable news and those types of outlets. None of those in and of themselves are sinful. We set them aside for a time that we might be reminded that Jesus is better than that thing. It's a spiritual discipline. We fast as a means of helping ourselves cling to Jesus. Now, here's the way this works, though. In your fasting from that worldly good, you might discover that your heart has an inordinate attachment to something about it. So you fast from social media for a time. And you come to find out over the period of that fasting that you actually had an inordinate, unhealthy, idolatrous attachment to the affirmation that comes from your social media feed. Now your heart needs a sanctification process. But you didn't fast from the sin. You fasted from the worldly thing and it gave rise to the reality of the sin in your heart. And you invite the Holy Spirit in to to meet you there and to sanctify you in that way. Fasting and sanctification are different. We fast from worldly comforts, not from sinly practices. Here's practical piece number two. We fast as a reminder of our ultimate satisfaction. In this way, fasting points us backward and helps us look toward the cross. Any spiritual discipline, fasting is one of them, is an intentional act that we undertake because we know that it's good for our soul. So the question is, How is fasting good for our soul? In the big, global, universal, theological sense, what Jesus is saying here is that when he came, everything changed. That's the whole point of what he's trying to say to the Pharisees. And so now, on this side of the cross, fasting is not something that we do to prove our righteousness. It isn't something we do to earn or to demonstrate righteousness. We fast, and we look backward at the cross, and the cross provides the motivation because it has provided the righteousness. The cross and our gratitude for what Jesus did there and the satisfaction, the fulfillment that he offers us because of that work now provides what propels us into fasting, that we'd be able to say, I can let go of all of this worldly stuff because Jesus has provided everything that my soul ultimately needs. The cross reminds us that his finished work has brought with it ultimate satisfaction. 
that what my soul, what your soul, what every human soul most needed was not given to us by some worldly comfort or worldly thing, but by Jesus and his work on the cross. Fasting helps remind us that that act, his life, his death, his resurrection has completely changed our eternal, eternal reality and with it, our temporal taste buds. That the things that we ultimately want to savor are no longer the things that the world has to offer us, but instead, the king. We want to savor him. And so while fasting, we look back to the cross. Remind ourselves, we've been made new. We've been brought from death to life. And that with that change came new taste buds. And that means that when we fast from food, we look back at the cross and we're reminded that what Jesus did on the cross fills us in a way that food never could. We fast from caffeine, let's say. You look back at the cross and you get the reminder that though caffeine might give your system a nice little boost in the morning or in the middle of the day, but it could never lift your spirit and electrify your soul in the way that Jesus can. We fasted from noise, and so maybe you chose to not listen to podcasts from a week. And we look back at the cross, and we're reminded that that podcast was never going to provide the answers to your life's ultimate happiness. That podcast was never going to provide all the answers for your current or future marriage's success. It was never going to give you everything that you needed for your parenting's ultimate uh, effectiveness. But when you look back at the cross, and you see parenting or happiness or marriage in light of Jesus... You understand them correctly. Fast from social media. We look back at the cross and we get the reminder that 10 more minutes or 10 more followers or 10,000 more likes on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok could not possibly provide the validation, the affirmation, or the relational beauty that being seen, known, loved, accepted, cleansed, and cherished by Jesus can offer. We're gonna fast from news feeds. One of the encouragements that we're gonna give in a couple weeks when we fast from news feeds is to literally allow the news to fade for a week. Look back at the cross and be reminded that one more cycle through the talking heads on cable news or one more scroll through your Twitter feed and the headlines isn't going to bring you hope for the world that the cross can. It's not gonna bring you joy in this life that Jesus has provided for us. This week, we're gonna fast from unnecessary spending. So whether it's on the way to work or in the middle of the day or in the evening when you're tempted to grab a cup of coffee or go out for lunch or pick up that nice little widget for your home, none of those things are gonna offer you the comfort that Jesus has provided for you on the cross. Fasting is a disciplined act that draws us to Jesus for the good of our soul. And the primary benefit to our soul is that fasting helps us look to Jesus to be reminded that satisfaction is ultimately in him, that he won it for us at Calvary and that every good thing in the world pales in comparison. We fast as a reminder of our ultimate satisfaction. And last, we fast as a foretaste of our eternal feasting. In one way, fasting points us backward to look at the cross. And in another way, fasting points us forward. And it reminds us that one day the bride and the groom are going to be reunited. And when the bride and the groom are reunited, there will only be feasting.
there will be no fasting. We will feast for eternity on the glory of Jesus. And we won't need to fast from anything because the bride and the groom will be together and they'll be together for all of eternity. I don't know for certain how many of the good things in this world are going with us into the next one. When this world passes away and new heaven and new earth are created, I'm not sure how much or in what form the good things from this world are going with us into the next one. But here's what I know for absolute certain, that even the very best things from this world that go with us into the next one are going to look incredibly dim in the light of the glory of Jesus. I know with absolute certainty that when the sun is present there in eternity and it is literally his presence that gives light for us to see, we're not gonna look at the rest of the stuff around there and think this is what I should hold on to. We're gonna look at the sun and we're gonna feast for all of eternity. And when we fast today, we look forward to then. And letting go of the stuff of the world in this day and in this broken place helps us cling more tightly to the things that we ought to cling to. And that's the king. That's Jesus. We're gonna be present with him one day, bodily present. And like the disciples, we won't fast then. We'll be with the groom. And there will be eternal feasting. Fasting reminds us to look forward. It reminds us that the things of this world are not ultimate. It helps us to remember that the things of this world, even the good ones, are but vague shadows of the ultimate goodness of Jesus. And so we let go of them for a time. And in letting go of them now and then, we actually learn what it is that we should hold on to most tightly. I want to circle back around to the question I asked at the start How's your fasting going? And I want to be the first one to confess that mine has been tepid at best. That oftentimes my fasting has not led me to feasting. Over this past week, um, as we were fasting from distraction, my wife and I chose to, uh, among a couple of other things, fast from Netflix. And the reason that we chose that was because the week before that, while my wife was recovering from a surgical procedure, we watched a lot of Netflix. And so it felt like we needed to detox. And so between fasting from Netflix and a couple of other distractions that we both laid aside, this week I made a commitment to myself that every time I thought about or wanted to like grab hold of the thing I was fasting from, I would instead reread the psalm that was in our devotional guide for that day. And so I am not exaggerating when I say that there were some days over the past week where I read the psalm like 15 times. And I feasted. And my fasting pushed me to feast on the glory of Jesus. That's why we fast not from sinful practices, we're sanctified from those, but from worldly comforts as a reminder of our ultimate satisfaction won for us at the cross and as a foretaste of our eternal feasting which will come in eternity. We fast from worldly comforts and we feast on the glory of Jesus. We're gonna close in worship like we typically do, but as we do that, I just wanna take one minute to talk about this practice historically in the church. There's a reason why Lent is the the primary time we associate with fasting. On the one hand, we do so as kind of a a symbolic look at and aligning ourselves with what Jesus did in the wilderness for 40 days. 
And so we do that, and it builds itself up to Easter. And so the church historically has spent six and a half weeks fasting during the Lenten period. And then on Easter Sunday, they gather together. Why? To celebrate the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, whereby he won an eternity for himself and his bride. And so on Easter, you would gather together as a church family and feast together on the beauty of the groom. And then what do you typically do after church on Easter Sunday? You get together with your family and eat. You feast. So we fast during Lent and what it does is it pushes us to appreciate the feasting that comes on Easter. So what is fasting all about in the church today? It is about letting go of the things of this world that we might look forward to the feasting that's going to come in eternity. It's about loosing our grip on the things that we never were supposed to hold on tightly to so that we can get a foretaste of what it's going to be like to feast on the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. So we fast for a little while that we might feast on the glory of Jesus infinitely. Amen? Amen. My prayer is that in the weeks that remain in our fasting, that we would be able to approach that with hearts that sing the words to the chorus of this song. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Not a great meal, not another cycle through social media, not any caffeine, not another podcast, not my understanding of the world's events. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Let's feast on the King together. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. You can stand.